I'm Nia Clark, and this is Dreams of Black Wall Street. My name is Gregory Black, and I'm a descendant of the Rosewood family, Bradley, Ruth Davis Bradley, and Janie Bradley Black. That's my mother. Can I ask you when you first learned about the Rosewood Massacre, how old are you? About 28 years old. What was your reaction? Like, what was going through your mind? Well, I was in the United States Coast Guard at the time, and what went through my mind was that it was a horrible thing, having your humanity take from you, being called names. And like, to me, I stood steady and did my duties in the service and stood tall and proud because I enjoyed what I was doing. I learned a lot while I was in the service and also learned a lot while learning from Rosewood. So compared to all that, I was able to retire out of the service. And now I'm the president of the Rosewood Heritage Foundation. Was there any one particular detail that you learned about when you learned of the Rosewood massacre that particularly shocked you or surprised you? The whole situation shocked me because We was black folks and being stepped over because you're black and and you own something and come and burn it down and take it away from you. And they really didn't want you to have anything. They want you to work for them with less money so you could build their revenue up and give you nothing. It's you stuck with nothing to make preparation for your family. During the time of Rosewood Massacre, January 1st, 1923, they had turpentine mills by the Goins family. My great-grandfather had a community store, and the Goins family had a Goins Quarter named the Goins Quarter, which was used to house the workers there and also used for housing other people. And the community interrelated with each other in marriage and and had kids and we had the carriers, the Goins, the Robertsons, the Evans. We had about eight families living in that area. We had the Coleman's, the Halls, and when the massacre started, they had lost everything. They were shooting black people just because they was black. They had to run out of their homes to hide, and they had on just their nightgowns and no shoes. And the kids had to hide in the swamp where alligators and mouse and snake called massacres was in there. And so they hid under the palmettos that's deep down in the swamp, and the, the white mob was trying to hunt them down to just kill them. And we had one lady named Alexis Goins. She was shot in the back as she was running away in the woods. And Sylvester and his mother was in the house and they came to knock on the door and tell him to get out, to come and talk to him. And they shot Sarah through the window and the sheriff broke through the doors. Vesta shot the sheriff and the deputy and it was a shootout. Bullets flying through the homes. So after they had ran out of ammunition, they had to go reload to the general store to come back to shoot up the house. And the family went in the swamp for days, three or four days. They stayed in the swamp. And during that time, the governor was called and asked the chef, was everything okay? The chef said everything was okay because the governor was going to bring the National Guards. And so the guards never came. The chef and the the posses went back out to kill more black folks. Rosewood was like in a state of distress and no one came to help the folks. So they had to hide to save themselves. They had to get the train. John Wright and the Rison brothers brought the train in to get the 
black women and children out of Rosewood. And so they was heading up to Sumner to go and kill some blacks up in there. But the sawmill manager told them not to move, stay in summer, don't go nowhere, stay in your huts. And they would all a posse to keep them from coming in the summer to kill their black folks. So they had a standoff and then they turned around and went back killing black folks and hunting them down. They lost all their lands through the white mob. And the white mob was gathering up and saying they own this land. And these folks were so terrified and humiliated that they went into hiding for decades. And kept it a secret. And Aunt Ruth was the first one to open her mouth to explain what happened to Rosewood. Gary Moore, the newspaper reporter, published the Rosewood. And that's how the interview started up. And they went on the Ed Bradley 60 Minutes show and went on a Mary Parvitt show. By revisiting the time of the American Revolution, we understand that the institution of slavery was critical in helping to define what American society was and who was an American. Slavery helped shape the identity of all Americans, and in particular, the notion of citizenship in our nation's early history by giving it a powerful exclusionary sphere. This large class of people, slaves, were simply defined as being outside of the political body of the state. According to the 1860 federal census, there were nearly 4 million enslaved African Americans and just under half a million free blacks nationwide during this period, the eve of the Civil War. After the Civil War, the nation's leaders defined the core values of America as freedom and equality, now hallmarks of American democracy, and indeed, that which has largely helped define the parameters within which the body politic of the state exists, including all the liberties afforded America's citizens. While the passage of the 13th 14th and 15th Amendments, which became known as the Reconstruction Amendments, were meant to codify this for African Americans. The unwritten codes that relegated Blacks to the realms of second and third class citizenship by denying them full access to the protections, civil rights, and liberties outlined in the Constitution rendered these amendments far less effective in the selective nature with which they were applied. As noted earlier in the podcast, researchers estimate that a century ago, there were hundreds of Black communities. Quote, more than 1,200 Black settlements, enclaves, and towns were established in the United States between the late 18th and early 20th centuries. More than 500 settlements were established with the physical elements and cultural institutions in a town format. End quote. That's according to the Historic Black Towns and Settlements Alliance. A number of these communities were full of industrious, entrepreneurial-minded, skilled, literate, educated, upwardly mobile Black people. Some of America's first Black millionaires called these communities home. On the other hand, many resembled what we might consider working-class communities, and others were certainly not places to be desired. However, these communities primarily consisted of a portion of the four million formerly enslaved Blacks that were freed after the Civil War and or their descendants. Creating community of any sort under those circumstances could not have been easy and was most certainly a testament of the resiliency that was required to survive as an African-American living during this time period. Also noted previously, an aggressive and often violent backlash to the improvement of the conditions of African-Americans began to take hold in parts of the country. This backlash succeeded in its goal of destabilizing and destroying hundreds of these communities, including Rosewood, in part because America has historically defined who deserves to be treated as full citizens in racial terms. Since citizenship implies the ability to enjoy the full rights of freedom in America, this question of who belongs to American society, who is a real American citizen, has been a central problem since the time of the revolution. Rosewood is but one example, albeit an extreme one, of the enormous cost African Americans have had to pay for pursuing the promise of full citizenship in America. 
The Rosewood Massacre was a microcosm of a war of brutality waged against African Americans, particularly those who dared to prosper. Unfortunately, only a fraction of the all-Black communities and municipalities that offered a path towards some semblance of independence and real citizenship that existed a century or more ago exists today. Researchers estimate that number is fewer than 50. Like many others, Rosewood is not counted among them. Those who terrorized Rosewood and had a hand in reducing the community to rubble did so and knew they could do so with impunity because Black people in America simply were not counted as full citizens. Their existence, no matter how promising, was one of second- or third-class citizenship. No amount of achievement, wealth, or pride would change that. And this is why those who escaped the Rosewood Massacre and lived to talk about it rarely did. If survivors were fortunate enough to have found their relatives after escaping the massacre, conversations about it were usually contained within the family, if at all. While various survivors had different reasons for keeping mum about Rosewood, most understood that many members of the mobs who hunted Rosewood's residents like animals during the first week of January 1923 were alive and well in the years that followed. Some were even neighbors in communities some of the survivors had relocated to. And as second- and third-class citizens, they felt their survival depended upon their silence. For nearly 60 years, Rosewood remained buried in the memories of those who escaped, witnessed, or caused the massacre. That is, until a curious journalist by the name of Gary Moore, who worked for the St. Petersburg Times, which is now the Tampa Bay Times, started looking into the Rosewood Massacre in early 1982. His investigative expose was published in the paper on July 25, 1982. Since then, the story of Rosewood has been brought into clearer focus through hours upon hours of further investigations and research. But according to Moore, in some cases, the story has evolved into fantastical folklore. His perspective differs somewhat from some of the other accounts about Rosewood that you've heard during this season of the podcast. It is a perspective based on nearly four decades of work surrounding Rosewood. Moore has served as a consultant on Rosewood to the State University System and the Florida Attorney General's Office, and as a reference to Rosewood for FAMU's Black Archives and University Press of Florida. He is also the author of the 2016 book, Rosewood, The Full Story. The following is a story Mr. Moore wrote for the opinion pages of the Tampa Bay Times in 2018 called The Real Numbers from the Rosewood Massacre and Why They Matter. Quote, Florida's former secret, the Rosewood racial atrocity, has haunted me for 36 years. Back in the mists of 1982, before email, cell phones, or GPS, I was the revealer of that long-lost secret, unveiling it in an investigative expose for the St. Petersburg Times, as this newspaper was then called. It's nostalgic now to be back in these pages, speaking as the gray eminence on the Rosewood evidence. But I bring a warning. Yes, the shocking racial cleansing that occurred in January 1923 was real and was masked by eerie racist denial until 1982. But as my reporting made the atrocity public, an underlying pressure towards illusion seemed only to change shape, going from denial of the atrocity into another form and manipulating the new image, not least by exaggerating the Rosewood death toll under the Rosewood massacre label. End quote. After explaining the tragic events between January 1st to January 7th, 1923, Moore goes on to explain, quote, I know this sequence because over many years I interviewed the still-living, lynching-era informants, black and white, and this meant navigating through a predictable maze of contradictions. I had to seek more and more witnesses, then more, so the sheer size of the pool, in combination with similar digging for background documents, could expose the false trails of senility, childhood pseudo-memory, alibis, racist boasting, and other snares. End quote. He goes on to write, quote, Extensive research has simply verified that the six African-Americans mentioned in 1923 news reports, however vaguely, were indeed the total death toll. The Jim Crow newspapers badly distorted some aspects, chiefly the blame, but they seized on any deaths they could find as juicy sensationalism. It's an important lesson, showing that racial death tolls in the old newspapers tend not to be cover-ups, as sometimes alleged. Three of the six dead African-Americans probably were buried in one grave. A photographer's penciled notes from an international newsreel, mass grave, photo, the photo itself is too murky to interpret, say specifically that it contained the bodies of three people. The three killed near the gravesite were Sylvester Carrier, Sarah Carrier, and Lexi Gordon. 
all evidence points to the conclusion that stories about a mass grave probably do have this nugget of truth, not dozens, not 26, not 27, not 17, not 18, but three. From the start on January 1st, 1923, the Rosewood events fed on false information, myth, rumor, illusion, with a force echoing even into our own age of revelation. By now, stories of a hidden hand at Rosewood, a secret wife-boyfriend, even Masonic conspiracy have been enshrined in prestigious forums with only imaginary evidence required. An initial white female accuser in the events, far from being a sleazy harlot as portrayed in a wild fantasized movie in 1997 and its sober-looking tie-in book, was described by the real witnesses as having quite other kinds of psychological problems, with circumstantial evidence pointing to a panic attack, nightmare, or even breakdown behind her disastrous allegations. And it's still possible she may really have been attacked as claimed. No credible evidence turns out to support the audience-pleasing idea of a secret boyfriend in the mix. Rumor-like promoters have simply quoted one another until he's made to seem real. End quote. The article goes on to read, quote, By 1983, after explosive publicity at the Times, I found that the task of tracing elderly Rosewood survivors had just begun. I took the story to 60 Minutes at the time, the most-watched program on American TV. Resources from CBS News then helped me track down new informants with unforeseen results. Forty people died here, 60 Minutes correspondent Ed Bradley was declaring into the microphone at Rosewood's lonely site, speaking from a script by field producer Joel Bernstein. When I sidled up and muttered, Joel, I've got to tell you something. All these witnesses I'm finding, they're confirming a different picture, or words to that effect. From what I was learning, the script was exaggerating the death toll. But it wasn't changed. The true nature of a serious tragedy was up for grabs and would take years more to solidly confirm. By now, the digging is done, plus time-consuming collation and comparison of informant assertions and slow tracing of every possible disappeared person. The real number of Rosewood dead, eight, is not some kind of official cover-up or racist gloss from 1923. End quote. When Moore says eight, he's referring to the six African-Americans he says were killed, plus the two white law enforcement officials who were also killed at the Carrier House. Quote, in reality, between 70 and 250 people were killed in Rosewood. This astonishing leap of fantasy is not in some fringe blog. For years, it was in the New York Times online, saying that these astronomical fantasy numbers came from interviews by the reporter who stumbled across the old story, meaning me. Suddenly, a small spot in the backwoods of history with its reproachful eight dead swells into something more massive, suggesting a glimpse into the workings of unconscious illusion. Reparations. In the years from 1991 to 1994, Rosewood marked a Florida first. The Rosewood claims case in the Florida legislature produced the nation's only government compensation payments to lynching era victims. By then, nine survivors were still alive to receive $150,000 each with state apologies for not having stopped the 1923 attack. This climaxed in 1997. The $26 million Warner Brothers motion picture Rosewood purported to show real history, as Oprah Winfrey phrased it. A somber documentary-style screen note, intoned. The survivors placed the number of Rosewood dead between 40 and 150. Nope, the word survivors clearly refers to the surviving African-American victims, and none ever used those numbers or anything close. End quote. The article continues, quote, Rosewood's eight dead, not 27, nor 40, nor scores more, are atrocity enough. History is not served by embellishing the loss if a higher body count is required to make it truly matter. Rosewood was and is a somber reckoning point. The state owes it to the victims and to history to follow the trail of evidence to the reality. End quote. In the previous episode, you heard from journalist and author Michael Dorso, who is the author of Like Judgment Day, a detailed account of the Rosewood Massacre, as well as the lives of the survivors in the decades that followed and their years-long fight for justice and compensation. Here he is again speaking about his own research into the long-lost secret of Rosewood and the process of piecing the story together. This interview with Mr. Dorso was conducted in the spring of 1996 for the recording of the audiobook version of his book.
the news side was pretty much known. You know, town was wiped out 70, 70 some years uh, earlier, and you know, some measure of justice had been brought by this by this state uh, legislature acknowledging what had happened and awarding a certain amount of money. But to me, the human side of this of this story, there were just huge gaps in everything that I had seen and read and everything that was known at the, even at the time, all the way up, up to April of 1994. You know, 60 years of silence between 1923 and the early 1980s when the story began stirring again. And then 10 more years of silence after there was a 60 Minutes broadcast about this in 1983. And it's not until 1993 the bills filed. In this case, you know, I, I knew it was crucial to get to the survivors first and as soon as possible because the fact was that these were elderly people. They were scattered all over the state and they were in the twilight of their lives. Eleven years before I began this, this story, 60 Minutes had done their report in 1983 and at that time there were about 80 survivors of Rosewood living. By the time I went out to do this 10 years later, 11 years later, there were 12. It was just that window of life when these folks were passing away, and they were the they were the essential foundation, the people who had who had actually been there. They're they're the hooks on which the story hangs emotionally and so many other ways. They were the hooks on which the claims bill hung. Without the testimony of these living witnesses, these people who had been there as children, I doubt the legis there was no question the legislature never would have never would have passed this bill. That's what filled in the gap for the following. 10 years between 83 and 93 when this story became, when it got stirred up and, the, and the, uh, these scattered survivors found out that one another existed and the, then the family had to deal with that, that process of pulling back on, on pain and fear and shame and all kinds of layers of emotion that we can only imagine mm. at best and had to decide whether, that, whether they wanted to do that. It was a difficult process to just bring this thing up again. They'd, been, they'd put it to rest in their own particular ways, every individual. And you know, without a doubt, the pain that I encountered with every one of, of the folks I spent time with, and I spent time with every one of the survivors in their homes and uh, everywhere from, you know, some, some lived in inner city urban areas, some lived in shacks out in the woods. And, you know, I faced a lot of tears, you know, uh, a lot of silence. It was very vivid, you know, like it happened yesterday for every one of, every one of the people who went through this. And another difficult part, just as a reporter, were the, were the again, this, the wildly varying accounts of family members, you know, survivors and descendants alike, you know, the passion with which these accounts were embraced, you know, a lot of finger pointing and name calling, you know, uh, one one theme that emerges emerges in this story is that everyone has their own truth, you know, and they guard it jealously. You see it in any family. Families sit around a table and start to talk about old family stories or old incidents. And pretty soon, one saying, oh, so-and-so doesn't know what he's talking about. You know, now I'll tell you what really happened. This is the way it was. And you take two dozen families and uh, stretch it out over three generations and have the stories stem from a horrifically uh, traumatic experience like this one. And, and the, uh, the head, head butting can, can get pretty nuclear. From, from the blacks, naturally, there was an you know, initial wariness and a mistrust. And it didn't even really have to do with the fact that I was white. It had to do with the fact that I was an outsider. I'm not a member of the family, and I'm a, I'm, a, I'm a reporter, I'm a journalist, you know, coming in to sort of start probing. And this is a process every journalist faces. You have to, in whatever way you connect with human beings, spend time with time and patience. You know, that, that distance melts away, and finally people are able to open themselves up to you. And it, t it takes time with every person. It's like any relationship, really, in a condensed form. The, probably the toughest nut to crack was Minnie Lee, Minnie Lee Langley. She was, she was an outcast, even among the family. At the time that I went to to talk to her, there had been there had been a lot of dissension, a lot of hard feelings about the path Minnie Lee had taken on her own to try to do something about this thing before the families all pulled together. And so she had always been alone. She was a survivor in the truest and fullest sense of the word. And she was just as feisty and you know, I mean, she was she was she was small, tiny as a minute, you know, but had the force of of, of a tornado inside of her. I and mean, this woman. She was very, very strong, and getting Minnie to open up, it, it took some time, you know. She's a good poker player. I was really struck, though, by the lack of bitterness, you know, in the parts of all the survivors. They had every reason in the world to, to use words like, you know, revenge and, and anger, and, and they had, each in their own way, and, and to a person, every one of the men and women who were actual survivors of the Rosewood incident, they just displayed an, you know, truly amazing grace. And I think that struck the legislature when they saw these, saw these people come in uh, and testify, and I saw it myself.
As you just heard Michael Diorso explain, following the initial years of media coverage about the Rosewood Massacre, a number of survivors decided that the time had come for them to seek justice. The following is a 1994 Washington Post article written by William Booth called Black Survivors of 1923 Massacre Seek Compensation from Florida. Quote, Arnett Turner Goines today recalled the first cold days of January 1923 when white vigilantes descended on his small, predominantly black town in the swamps of northwest Florida and went on a killing spree after a white woman claimed she was molested by a black man. After decades of official silence, Goines and three other aging survivors of what their advocates call the Rosewood Massacre appear here today in an unprecedented and controversial claims hearing whose outcome will be decided by the Florida legislature. The group, including 11 survivors and 45 descendants, is seeking about $7 million in compensation for what happened to their families 71 years ago in Rosewood, when a mob of 200 to 300 whites killed at least six African Americans and then torched the town. No Black residents of Rosewood ever returned to the town 40 miles southwest of Gainesville. The survivors are claiming not only loss of life and property, but psychological damage as well. Their attorneys compared them to the victims of a racial holocaust. The elderly Black survivors and their supporters say the state of Florida, from the local sheriff to the governor, failed to protect the lives and property of African Americans who lived in Rosewood in 1923, and so are liable for damages. Quote, if Rosewood had been a white town surrounded by 400 angry black people, you know it would have received police protection, end quote, said Stephen Hanlon, one of the attorneys representing the Rosewood survivors and their descendants. According to a team of five historians appointed by the legislature, before Rosewood was sacked, it was a small rural, mostly black hamlet with three churches, a school, a Masonic lodge, and some small industries, including a sugarcane mill and turpentine plant. Survivors recall that at least 18 homes were destroyed. Goins, then a boy of eight, said he escaped into the woods after the mob lay siege to the house where he was hiding. His grandmother, however, was killed in the attack, and so were two white men in the mob who tried to get into the house. Goins and his family never returned. Instead, he worked most of his life shining shoes in St. Petersburg, and during 50 years of marriage, he never told his wife what happened in Rosewood. The Rosewood case is remarkable because those involved say it may be the first time that black citizens have sought damages from the government to compensate for the lynchings and murders that were commonplace following World War I, a time when white mobs attacked black sections of Chicago, Tulsa, and East St. Louis, Illinois. But attorneys for the Rosewood survivors say their case is unique, at least in Florida. Quote, we don't know of any other case where the state had so much time to react and when the state was on notice, end quote, Hanlon said. The historians appointed by the legislature, who relied heavily on news accounts written at the time, which often were highly sensational, concluded that law enforcement officers in Rosewood, quote, failed to control local events and to request proper assistance, end quote, from then Governor Kerry Hardy. Hardy monitored the events from Tallahassee. The Rosewood case was front page news around Florida and the nation, but the governor apparently was assured by the local sheriff that the situation was under control. The governor did not send additional law enforcement officers. He did, however, instigate a grand jury investigation, which failed to indict anyone. James Peters, an assistant attorney general, agreed that, quote, unfortunately, most of the facts of this case are true, end quote. He called the time, quote, a sorry period in Florida history. We should be ashamed of that and are, end quote. But he said what happened in Rosewood was not unique, that the damage and trauma associated with Rosewood were no worse than what happened to the 50 citizens, most of them black, who were lynched in Florida during the first two decades of the century. Quote, you're asking too much of the claims process, end quote, Peter said. Quote, and too much of the state of Florida, end quote. Moreover, Peter said state officials were not guilty of gross negligence. The claims hearing today proceeded much like an informal trial with elderly survivors, one blind, all of them frail, answering questions under oath about what they remember of the incident at Rosewood. After the hearing, administrative overseers will recommend to the legislature whether it should pay damages. Some legislators have warned that awarding compensation to the Rosewood survivors would expose the state to dozens of claims by black families who may believe the state failed to protect them from angry mobs, end quote. Next, you'll hear from attorney Stephen Hanlon, who was quoted in that article and served as the lead attorney in the Rosewood case.
So my name is Stephen Hanlon. I go by Steve. I'm 79 years old. I've been practicing law for 55 years. I grew up in St. Louis, left here and went in my mid-30s, early 30s, to go do civil rights work in Florida. And for about 10 years in the 80s, I did a wide, a wide range of civil trial work, including civil rights work, to make money to send my kids to college. <laughs> Not the civil rights work, <laughs> the other civil trial work. And at the end of the 80s, I proposed to Holland and Knight, which was the state's largest law firm, that they set up a pro bono department and that I headed up. And I did that for the next 23 years. They were wonderful to me. We had the largest full-time pro bono department of any private firm in the country. And I did most of my work in the South, and it involved uh, a wide variety of what I call a systemic institutional reform litigation. I, I was kind of a systems lawyer. I did cases on prison systems and school systems and mental health systems and housing systems, medical systems, etc. And I didn't do anything about criminal defense and the criminal justice system, except I did do two death penalty cases with a team of lawyers. So in the early 90s, I moved from Tampa to Tallahassee, and that's when I was introduced to the Rosewood. You answered the first part of my first question, and you jumped ahead, and I'm really glad because we have very little time. Case. Why did you decide to take on the Rosewood case? Well, I was fairly new to Holland and Knight at that time. And, you know, it was kind of a dream come true. It was a dream job. I, I thought I had the best lawyer job in America. I mean, I had this huge law firm with these tremendous resources available to me, both financial and, you know, brilliant young lawyers to work with me and older lawyers who I could go to in difficult situations. And one day in Tallahassee, uh, I got a call from this guy, Michael O. McCarthy. And he, came into my office and he'd been to the NAACP and he'd been to the Southern Poverty Law Center and everybody, everybody turning him down. And he'd heard about this guy in Tallahassee. And he said he had a signed contract for the movie rights to the Rosewood story. And it was signed by the last two survivors of Rosewood, Minnie Lee Langley and Ruth Bradley Davis. And I mean, I knew Michael O. McCarthy was a hustle. Okay. I know a hustle when I see one. Okay. But I was fascinated by the story. And the reason you got turned down, obviously, before was that the case was 70 years old. But that didn't bother me. I like to say that I have two criteria for a case before I decide to do it. The one is the wonderful index. It's got to be a wonderful story. And the other is the impossible index. And if it registers very high on those two indexes, then... I'm really interested in it. So this sounded both wonderful and impossible. So I uh, said, well, fine, you have your movie contract. And the reason he'd gone to the NAACP and he'd come to me was he wanted a trial to show the conflict. Okay. So I said, all right, I'll go down to Miami to interview Ruth Bradley Davis. And I did. And she's a remarkable woman, very strong, very active in her church and her community. and you could tell this was a serious person, and her memory was real clear about what had happened. And then I went to Jacksonville, and I met Minnie Lee Langley, and Minnie Lee Langley is one of the most remarkable people I've ever met in my life. She was quite frail. Her little arms were like that, and she lived in a really run-down neighborhood on the outskirts of Jacksonville. But... She had a vivid memory of what had happened. And she was probably the most harmed client. I mean, they were all harmed terribly, but I mean, her Aunt Sarah was really a mentor to her. And Aunt Sarah was the matriarch of the Rosewood community. She lived in a two story house. It had upholstered furniture, it had a piano. And Aunt, Aunt Sarah wanted Minnie Lee to be a nurse and was going to put the money up to get her an education to become a nurse. And Minnie Lee 
after she fled Rosewood in the middle of the night in her little nighty with all those kids, and it was a cold winter night in January of uh, 1923, she worked in a brush factory all her life. And the brush factory eventually moved to Mexico and she had no pension, no nothing. And she lived her life terrified of white people. I mean, terrified. And they all did because they were witnesses to unprosecuted murders. And they felt that if anybody ever found out, somebody would come out after them and kill them. So you can imagine living your whole life that way. I mean, it's, it's really frightening. Think of the South and Central Florida in the 20s and the 30s and the 40s and the 50s, and 60s, 70s, etc. Really, really frightening. But, oh, my God, could she tell the story. And the constable and the deputy constable, when they came through that front door, all the kids had run upstairs in Sarah Carrier's house. Minnie Lee was, apparently hadn't gotten upstairs, and Sylvester knew that bad things were about to happen. And Sylvester Carrier is this huge figure in the Rosewood story. And he grabbed her, and he puts his arm around her like this and pulls her back, and they're right sitting in front of the front door, and Sylvester's got his shotgun aimed. And that constable comes through, and bam, he blows him away, and bam, he blows the deputy constable away. Constable, and of course, all hell broke loose after that. But she's there, and she tells that story. And she's just vivid in her mind. And I knew right then, you know, I'm going to take this case. She's my star witness. So that's how I got interested in in, in the case, and I made up my mind I wanted to take that case. I think <clears throat> we shouldn't gloss over the fact that. Our net doctor had worked for several years to get that case in the hands of an attorney. And when I told my husband that even the NAACP wouldn't take it, he said, what? <laughs> <laughs> Everybody passed it up. But you, <laughs> you were the only one, which I think is fascinating in and of itself. So thank you for explaining why you took on that case, because I think it's really important for people to understand. You mentioned, by the way, Arnett Doctor. He, he was very upset with me originally because I was representing Minnie Lee and Lee Ruth Bradley Davis. And he called me and he said, who the hell do you think you are? <laughs> and. Uh, he wanted me, he said, I want you to come down. There's at least six more survivors. And this is outrageous, you know. And I want you to come down to a church in in Bacucci, Florida on Sunday, a little AME church, and I want you to meet those people. And I went down there, and he failed to tell me that he had the press there, including TV cameras. And it was a great meeting in that little church. And we got the principle across that, you know, we got to be all in this together, okay? And I know that you want money, and uh, it's never been done, and I'm going to go fight for money for you. But keep in mind that money and families don't go well together. And I'll get it. I'll try and get it for you, but it's not going to be the blessing that you think it's going to be. <laughs> and then I, I had a wonderful relationship with Arnett. We were both about the same age, and we both had similar illnesses, <laughs> and it was it was it was a great relationship. You mentioned Lee Ruth, and you mentioned Minnie Lee, and you mentioned Arnett. When you met the other family members in the church and the other survivors the first time, and you saw all these people who were descendants, what were your impressions of them? Really, only one. I mean, I was frankly, answering their questions about me <laughs> because they were upset as they should have been. You know, I have a distinct memory of the, the survivors being in the front row. Okay. The session lasted at least two hours. Two things were clear to me. One was that, and this became clearer and clearer as time went on, the survivors wanted their story to be told. That was their critical thing to them. And the descendants wanted the story to be told, but they really felt that compensation was a big issue. Reparations. The survivors did not feel that way at all. They would eventually give it away to their family, their churches, etc. But they really wanted their history known. 
And I think the fact, frankly, that it was Florida's largest law firm helped them overcome their fear. These people had lived with a lifelong fear of ever saying anything about this. So it took a lot of courage, you know, for them to do that. And my only thing was, we can't have this infighting. You know, we got to we got to kiss and make up and everybody's got to get together. See, usually you do this through a class action and there are rules. And that's it. This is, you're kind of making it up as you go along. I mean, right. <laughs> yeah, there are no yeah, rules. You should explain that when you eventually did get to the point where you found sponsors in the state legislature for the bill, an African-American state representative and uh, a Cuban state representative, and you were able to get them to agree to get this through. And then they decided it was going to be a bill. You want to explain why this didn't go through a normal court system and why it, it had to go through the state legislature? Yeah. Well, the court system has all sorts of obstacles which is why the NAACP and Southern Poverty Law Center and everybody turned it down. But I knew from some work I had done before that there's a claims bill procedure in Florida. See, the, the state has what's called sovereign immunity, and they waive it up to 250000 That's what the number was at that time. For injuries caused by the state like somebody's driving a truck for the Department of Transportation and they kill or injure somebody. So ordinarily, I don't agree with this doctrine, but it's the law, you know, the state is immune from suit, but they waive that up to 250 grand. And then if you want to get above that, you can go to the legislature for a claims bill. So the test for a claims bill is whether or not the state has a moral obligation in this situation. Well, I said, that's what I want. I, I couldn't, I can meet that test. Okay. I probably can't meet all the legal tests. Okay. To go into court, but I can sure meet that test. And the reason is that the state had an obligation to bring the perpetrators to justice and to restore the Rosewood family to their property. And this is why the statute of limitations never ran, too. It was both the merits of the claim and why the statute of limitations is not going to run on it. Because they had that obligation in 1923 and 33 and 43, 53, 63, all the way down to 1993. Okay? In fact, what really made the hearing examiner really get it was when it came out in the testimony that the state was looking right now. They had Florida Department of Law Enforcement. They thought there were people of... Uh, white people around who were involved in that murder. And so it was pretty obvious that the statute of limitations had not run. This was a live claim under that claims bill process. So that's why I said, let's go there. And of course, I'd rather be in the court of public opinion. It's going to be public all the way. And so that was the theory behind it. I'd say that it was critical what Maxine Jones did. It was critical to have the education part. You know, we're a nation without a common history. It's very hard to be a nation and not have a common history. We have two very distinct histories, okay? The vast majority of the American people are, and I hate to say this, functionally illiterate about the role of race in America. Okay? And there's a massive education job that has to go on here, okay? Because this doesn't make any sense to the vast majority of the American people right now. And so the education piece in terms of the scholars that we can put together to come up with a national report to try and develop a national history here are remarkable. Okay, The economics of what happened here, the social and mental health issues that have evolved, the pathologies in both the white and black community, this is huge. You know, I come back here in, in uh, St. Louis, and uh, there's a book on mapping decline by a cartologist. St. Louis is a hypersegregated city. I grew up here. He says this was apartheid. 
I knew about apartheid when I was in high school and college here in St. Louis, and I knew what a terrible thing it was in South Africa. It was here, okay? So there's a huge learning thing that has to happen. So that's the main lesson I think out of it is you got to start there, okay? You got to start with a set of common facts. And we do not have common facts right now. So it was not my idea to come up with a, the first bill, as you know, was, well, let's study it, okay? And everybody always says, oh, great, another commission to study it, okay? Well, that worked, okay? Because that history was, people couldn't deny it. It just did happen, okay? And here's the analogy. Rosewood was a powerful story, graphic, about the inability of African-Americans in this country to accomplish the intergenerational transfer of property from one generation to the next intact. That was destroyed here. It's very direct and, and obvious and clear and brutal. But what America has to understand is that's happened in all kinds of other very subtle ways. It's just that this was a really graphic example of it. And that's its principal teaching value here. And so the country has to come to terms with how that happened in so many different ways, four centuries, three or four centuries. Towards the end of that interview, you heard Mr. Hanlon mention the importance of the educational component of the case provided by a woman named Maxine Jones. He's referring to University of Florida professor Dr. Maxine Jones, who worked as principal investigator for the Rosewood Academic Study. The Florida legislature commissioned Professor Jones's study as the Rosewood case, led by Mr. Hanlon, made its way through the Florida legislature in the early 1990s. The case eventually led to compensation, or what some refer to as reparations, for Rosewood victims in 1994. My name is Maxine Jones, and I am a professor of history at Florida State University, and I teach. <laughs> what is it that you teach, Professor Jones? I teach African-American history. I teach U.S. history, and I do uh, the civil rights movement, <clears throat> and I do a little bit of women's history as well. Oh, that's a lot. <laughs> mm -hmm. um, so you're quite busy. All right. And so, Dr. Jones, how long have you been at Florida State? Well, since I was 18 years old, I came there to go to school and I never left. I got three degrees from FSU and then I was hired there. So I've been there for a while. Wow. So your whole entire college career and your professional career has been at Florida State. That's awesome. Yes. Yeah. Two thirds of my life I've been I've been on campus. Wow. Okay. So what sort of obstacles did you face when tackling this, what turned out to be a very large project, you right. and your colleagues, in terms of gathering the information, contacting people who might have knowledge about the massacre at Rosewood, all of that? Well, we knew we had the survivors. We had their stories. We had newspaper clippings. We were able to find, you know, property records and stuff to, you know, document of the claims of the survivors that their families owned land, you know, and stuff. We just basically did, you know, what historians do. And we documented, you know, to the best of our knowledge, what we could find. There wasn't a lot, but with the stories that we had, from uh, the survivors and their descendants, we were able to substantiate their claims. 
And, you know, it all depends on how you look at this project. Either it's a very big one or at its core, it's a very small one. And what we know is that there used to be a community called, uh, called Rosewood. And that community, you know, disappeared. And we were able to document that week. And that's the, that's the core of it. Now, it can become huge if you try to document everything that took place. You know, it's kind of like not being able to see the forest because of the trees. And so, yes, is it a big, big, is it a big project, a big study? Yes. But at its core, I think it's a very small, you know, study. We know what happened that week, or we know, we know the results of the violence that took place over the course of a week. And we were able to document that. You said it's either a very big project or a very small project. So I don't know which category this would fall into, but I know there were a lot of things you weren't able to uncover, a lot of mm-hmm. questions yeah. left unanswered because of the limited amount of information and the amount of time that had passed. What were some of those questions? The number of deaths. We as a team identified eight deaths, but many of the survivors, again, they were kids at the time, spoke of mass graves. And we know that a lot of people disappeared and they changed their names. So we don't know if there was a mass grave. Now, reputedly, FDLE did a study and they couldn't locate a mass grave at the time. Now, I know there's new technology which might allow a mass grave to be you know, found. I don't know. But we could not substantiate that there was a mass grave. Some of the survivors had mentioned, you know, the Ku Klux Klan. We could not substantiate that men in robes, you know, were there. And we couldn't substantiate whether or not Fannie Taylor was, we think she was assaulted. One of the people we interviewed claimed she was actually raped. But to our knowledge, that was never her charge, you know, that she had been raped, but that she was assaulted. And to be honest, that really wasn't what we were trying to substantiate. We were trying to uh, prove that this small, close-knit Black community existed at the end of December, and a week later, it no longer you know, existed. I think that was our mission, and I think we accomplished that. But there are a lot of unanswered questions. You know, what happened to all of the people who disappeared and who were never heard from again? Many of the survivors claimed that Sylvester Carrier was not killed that week. According to what we could find, he was among those eight people, you know, who were killed. Uh, The family members said he managed to escape and that they received a Christmas card from him, you know, for many years afterwards. But we couldn't, you know, prove or disprove that. So I'm always fascinated by these stories of resistance and escape. And this story of resistance, it, you know, dates back to the first slaves, the first Africans that were brought to what we now know as the United States. And that seems to be one of the most fascinating parts, survival. Well, I think it's it's important to the Black community to know that Blacks resisted, that Blacks fought back. But I also understand that, you know, for these people who were caught up in this, just like slaves who managed to escape, they couldn't advertise how they escaped because that would mean that others couldn't use, you know, the same modes. And with many of the Rosewood survivors, they grew up in fear. They knew the power of whites. They lived in fear that Rosewood, well, I guess Rosewood did follow them. 
but they lived in fear that the whites from that region could still reach them, could still, you know, touch them. And that's one of the reasons why this story was buried for so long. But it's important, you know, to the Black community to have heroes and to know that Blacks fought back. And sometimes there's a myth that is created with all of this, and we can't separate, you know, the truth from, you know, myth. But many of these people escaped, at least we think they escaped, and changed their names, were afraid to get in touch with their families for fear that whites would, you know, find out about it and that they would be back in that same situation. So we counted a Sylvester among the eight people whom we know of were killed. We don't know how many people were injured. We don't know how many white people were injured. There were reports that, you know, more whites died, but there was just no way that we could, you know, really prove any of that. Sure, certainly. So were you able to uncover any helpful information, particularly with regards to the Rosewood Bill that perhaps was not known prior to your study and your research? Well, first of all, we gave the Rosewood survivors and their descendants an opportunity to tell their story. And up until this time, their story was not known outside of the family. And, you know, it's really interesting how these things just sort of fall into play. I I had a neighbor and she was an elderly white woman. We became very good friends. We talked every day. We had puppies out of the same litter. We became a part of each other's lives. And she was a widow and she traveled, you know, internationally and She had a friend that she traveled with sometime and they went to Holland and they came back and they had a recording of their trip on a VHS tape. Well, my neighbor didn't have a VCR and she asked if she and her friend could watch this recording at my house and they did. We thought nothing of it. I don't know if it was years later or what, But I mentioned that I was involved with Rosewood and my neighbor said, well, you know, Martha grew up in that area and I had no idea. And so, I mean, here was a a white woman who I guess she grew up in Sumner and she, I mean, I knew her. She had been in my home before and actually, well, as it turns out, she was the daughter of the superintendent of the lumber mill in Sumner. I mean, that was, I mean, this is kind of spooky. I mean, really, it is kind of spooky. next episode, we'll begin to dive into what has become of Rosewood in the years since the massacre, including up until the present day. Be sure to rate, review, and subscribe to this podcast on iTunes or on your favorite podcast platform. One other thing, if you want to hear a bunch of clever people speak about a bunch of fascinating topics, including history, make sure you register for this year's Intelligent Speech Conference, which will take place on Saturday, April 24th at 10 a.m. Eastern Standard Time. The theme of this year's conference will be Escape. Just like last year, if you attended virtually, there will be eight hours of great presentations from up to 40 different content creators from the worlds of podcasting, YouTube, and media. Yours truly will be one of the presenters. Each session will be 40 minutes long. Just search for Intelligent Speech Conference online to register and learn more. Mm-hmm.